You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We come to the end of our book of Jonah. We said that the major theme of the book is God's mercy and compassion extends even to the heathen nations. That's the, that's the big focus of this book is that God's compassion, his mercy, his love, his plan of salvation extends beyond the people of Israel to the ends of the earth. And I think we can collectively this morning be thankful that God's people did not have their way with us, us being the Gentiles. This is a sentiment that wasn't just ingrained in Jonah's mind, it was ingrained in the people of Israel's minds. They hated the Gentiles. We see this mindset that Jesus has to attack and attack and attack in the Gospels, that they were anti-Gentile. Even the, the, prodigal son, uh, the prodigal son story is a testimony to that. There was hatred towards God's compassion and mercy towards others. It was expected towards them, and it was hated towards others. And we can be thankful this morning that God's people are not the judge of what should happen to us as Gentiles. Because when God asked the question, should I not pity Nineveh, our only hope is that God would have pity. Our only hope as Gentiles this morning is that God would have pity upon us. We can be thankful this morning that Jesus is greater than Jonah, that instead of running from his enemies, he ran to his enemies. Romans 5.10 tells us that it's because of Christ's life and death that we are no longer enemies of God. So we can be thankful this morning that God's mercy and compassion do extend even to the heathen nations. We saw in chapter 1 that Jonah ran from God to the sea, We see Jonah as a tragic prophet who, despite what we may have thought growing up, he did not fear going to Nineveh because he would fail. He feared going to Nineveh because he feared he would succeed and they would turn. I guarantee you this morning he would have run to Nineveh if he believed God was going to punish them. I think when Jonah got this message, if he honestly believed that in 40 days, Nineveh was going to be wiped off this earth. He would have ran to that city and proclaimed that message to get the ball rolling on this judgment. But we've seen already that he turns and runs because he does not believe that God is going to bring judgment. He believes that God is a gracious God that is going to extend mercy to this heathen city. We see in chapter 2 that he runs to God in the belly of the fish. God preserves him after bringing the storm after ultimately bringing the sailors on the ship to repentance. God begins to continue that work in Jonah's heart. He appoints the fish, and it's in the belly of the fish that Jonah begins to cry out to God. And we said that the focus is not on what went on inside the fish, but was was going on inside of Jonah. So we don't have to really spend a lot of time speculating what kind of fish was it. How did Jonah survive in the fish? We've said week after week that God allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to survive in a furnace. He can easily, miraculously allow Jonah to persevere in this fish. But what's the focus of the chapter is what goes on inside of Jonah. We said that this prayer of Jonah, it's good theology. His prayer has good theology in it. It's focused on God's sovereignty and deliverance. He concludes by saying that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's great theology in what he prays. It's bad application to his heart, though. It's bad application. There's no repentance in this. We said that he echoes the sentiments of the psalmist. If you go back and read through the psalms, the language and style of this prayer is very similar to things that David prayed. But we said it it resembles too much the prayers of David when he's being oppressed by his enemies for no reason. That David's repentance psalms sound far different than Jonah's prayer. Jonah seems to be praying as though he's oppressed by his enemies and that he's done nothing wrong. So it's good theology. He's, he's using scripture that's already in his mind. And I challenge you that uh, to enhance our prayer life, we need to bathe ourselves in scripture so that we can pray the very words to God that he's ordained. Jonah does that, but there's a lack of repentance. And then chapter 3, running with God to Nineveh, we said that Jonah carries the message that God gives him. We said that he probably spends about the same time in the city as he did in the fish. But we see that Jonah does not extend any type of hope to this city. He's happy to receive God's mercy, but he's not willing to extend 
that same hope of mercy to others. I challenge you that we don't become people who enjoy our salvation, who relish in our salvation, who enjoy and relish in the fellowship of believers, and yet we fail to extend that grace and mercy to others, our co-workers, our neighbors, our our family members, that we don't become uh, grace hoarders, that we don't become grace hold-on-toers, that we extend that grace to others. And too often we're guilty of holding on to that grace. We, we enjoy it. We praise God for our salvation. We believe that God will work good in our life as he's promised. We fail to bring others into that type of relationship. And Jonah was happy to receive God's mercy, not willing to extend it. We saw the response of Nineveh. Even when Jonah goes in there and tries to botch it, I mean, he tries to blow it. He tries to do a poor job of evangelism. An entire city responds. An entire city responds and repents. And so I challenge you that if, if we as believers can even get an ounce of desire to do it right, how much more can God accomplish through us when he saves an entire city when a man was trying to mess up his evangelism, trying to mess up the efforts to bring the gospel to these people? We said that truth was taught. We're told in Scripture that Nineveh believed God and they acknowledged their sin. They don't defend themselves. Instead, they respond with sackcloth and ashes. It's the exact same things that Israel was commanded to do. So I told you there's speculation about was their repentance real? Did Nineveh really turn to Yahweh? I said all indications in Scripture are that they did. Now, we know it doesn't have long-term effects that a generation later God brings judgment on Nineveh as a fulfillment of Nahum's prophecy. But for the time being, there seems to be real repentance that takes place in the lives of these people. God treats it that way. He relents from the disaster he planned. They didn't fool God. There's times when people may fool us. They respond to our gospel message. We think they get saved, and and they don't. But you can't fool God on this. And God relents based on what he sees, and he knows their hearts. He relents, and Jesus treats it that way. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to this story, and he says Israel ought to be doing what Nineveh did back then. That Nineveh will ridicule Israel for not repenting when they had somebody greater than Jonah who came to preach repentance to them. There's also speculation about did God change? Did God change his mind here? That's a debate sometimes in Scripture. Does God change his mind? And I would argue that God doesn't change in this story, and he doesn't change his mind. It's true. God threatened to punish sinful Nineveh. And by the end of chapter 3, sinful Nineveh doesn't exist anymore. They've repented. And so the only thing that's really changed in this story is Nineveh, not God. And we could argue, too, that Jonah recognizes that God didn't change. Why? Because he says, I never wanted to even go to this city because I knew what your intentions were. Jonah says, you didn't change. I knew this is what you were going to do from the very beginning. So God doesn't change in this story. He's the one that changes people in this story. We see that God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. As wicked as Nineveh was, and God describes that in Jonah chapter 1, he says, their evil has come before me and I can't tolerate it anymore. Our capacity to sin pales in comparison to God's capacity to forgive. I told you last week it would be real easy if this is where the story ended. This is where most Sunday school lessons end. Great story. Jonah ran from God. He didn't want to be a missionary. Got swallowed by a fish and decides he does want to be a missionary. And the entire city gets saved. But what we find out is that that's not the end of the story. That there's not a mission-minded Jonah at the end of this story. There's an angry Jonah. A prophet who has succeeded, but in his mind has failed because of what he desired to happen with these people. And so we enter chapter 4, running ahead of God outside the city. I told you that Jonah doesn't repent in chapter 2, and part of the way we know that is that when the sailors repent, we don't hear about them again. Chapter 1, the sailors repent. God's done with that part of the story. Nineveh repents in chapter 3, and we don't hear about them again. God's done with their part of the story. Jonah, some people would argue, does repent in chapter 2. I would argue that he doesn't. And part of the reason I would argue that is that We have chapter 4, that God's not done with working on Jonah's heart. So we come to chapter 4, and we ultimately discover that this story is all about God's compassionate mercy. 
but it's also about how we respond to it. God asks the question to Jonah, and he's asking the question to us this morning, should I not pity others? Should I not pity others? I think it's important, too, that when we read through this, I mean, we're going to see some grotesque attitude by Jonah here. And it'd be real easy for us to judge this and say, how could you ever get to that point? But we need to be careful with our own hearts that if this could happen to a prophet of God, it could certainly happen to us. I mean, this is God's spokesman. This is, this is God's prophet for Israel. And this is the attitude that we see within his heart. And we need to guard our hearts and not believe that we're exempt from falling into this type of trap and developing this type of attitude. That if this can happen to one of God's prophets, then it can certainly potentially happen to us. And God uses warnings throughout Scripture to make sure that these type of things don't happen to us. And so just as in the book of Hebrews, God warns about not following, falling away, that you persevere to the end, and he uses that warning to make sure that we persevere to the end. I would encourage you this morning to take heart, to not be Jonah, to not develop this type of attitude and to guard your heart from it. Number one in your notes, the response of Jonah. We start off this chapter by seeing Jonah's response to the developments of chapter 3. The response of Jonah, the one who was shown grace, responds with no grace. Right? Like Jonah's life was saved in the depths of the sea. God appoints a fish to bring him back to to life in a sense. And if anything, chapter 4 should be a, a glorious celebration that God saved the sailors that God saved him, and that God saved an entire city. Chapter 4 should be the praise chapter. It should be the prayer of praise. And yet what we ultimately see is that Jonah is completely displeased with how chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 have gone. He's angry about it. Verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Maybe the better translation, if we were to accurately try to bring it out, it's that it was evil to Jonah with great evil. Now, if you contrast this with chapter 1, this is the other time that we hear about something evil. And this really helps us see that Jonah did not repent in chapter 2. In chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah assesses what happens in chapter 3 with Nineveh, and it was evil to Jonah with great evil. Jonah's anger towards God's actions rivals God's anger towards Nineveh. Think about the depth of that. God is angry at Nineveh and their sin in chapter 1. And in chapter 4, Jonah's anger is rivaling God's where he's saying, I am angry at you and I am angry at this situation that you have, that you have allowed their repentance to cause you to relent from the disaster that you were going to bring upon them. We've got two angry individuals in this story. God angry at sin Jonah now, not only angry at Nineveh, remember we said that he hates Nineveh, they're his enemies, they're uh, oppressors of Israel. He's now directing that anger towards God and he says, it's evil what has happened here. That is a dangerous assessment for him to judge God's actions now as evil. God had said Nineveh's actions were evil. Jonah now says, God, your actions are evil. What you've done here is not right. He justifies himself. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew who you were. He justifies his right to run. He says, I was right to run. He's not repentant here. He's not saying, I'm sorry for running from you, God. He says, I knew it. I knew I was right to run. I had this whole situation played out perfectly. This is exactly what I thought was going to happen. And it's evil. It's wrong. I was right to run. He says, because I knew who you were. And that's, that's really silly if you think about it. If you knew who God was, why did you sign up to serve him if you didn't like who he was? Right? Like, if you know who God is, he says, I knew who you were. And now I'm angry because you are who I thought you were. It's like, what? Like, if you really knew who he was, why did you sign up to, to follow him? You can't complain about it now. 
You can't complain that this played out exactly how you thought it would and then try to justify your actions. On a far lesser note, this is I was listening to the um, the radio the other day. Um, if you're not if you don't like football, I use football illustrations. You guys know this, so bear with me. Um, Georgia Tech, okay, their their quarterbacks leaving the school, right? Like Georgia Tech has this weird, funky offense that they run. It's only tailored for certain players. And this quarterback, who was a big time recruit, supposedly coming out of high school, decides to go to Georgia Tech. And he's been there like two years, and he says, I'm leaving. I don't like the offense that we run. Like, I don't, I don't like this offense. Everybody's criticizing. They're like, then why did you go to Georgia Tech? Like, you knew what – this guy, this coach at Georgia Tech's been running this offense for the last decade and a half. Why would you agree to a scholarship to go to a school where you know what offense they run and then complain about it and say, I'm leaving. This is exactly what I thought it was. That's what you have here with Jonah. Jonah says, you're the type of guy that I thought you were, and that makes me angry now. Like, why did I agree to be your prophet, basically? And his reasoning's completely off. If you knew who God was, why did you sign up to follow him? Why did you sign up to serve him? He says, this is exactly what I thought. You're doing exactly what I was afraid you were going to do. And I was right to run. I was right to try to get out of here, because this is evil, what you've done here. Jonah moves from hating Nineveh to God. What he quotes here is the central expression of God that we see over and over in the Old Testament. He says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We see this attribute description of God throughout the the Old Testament. This is what God's people knew about him. Numbers 14, 18. So Jonah's not just quoting some obscure passage. I mean, this is how God's people understood Yahweh. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Nehemiah 9.17 They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Talking about Nehemiah's referencing back to the children of Israel when they left Egypt and then wanted to go right back to Egypt. Nehemiah says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We could look at Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 145, 8. We'll look at Joel 2, 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Jonah has this passage ingrained in his mind. I mean, this is like their John 3, 16, right? Like, we all grow up. It's one of the first verses you memorize as a kid. And it seems that this is one of the first passages, one of the first things about God that the the kids of Israel were taught because they know it. Jonah says, I've always heard this about you, and this is exactly who you are, and I hate it. This is evil for you to act this way. He's not quoting some obscure passage. This is what he knows. This is what he's been ingrained in as a kid, that this is who Yahweh is. He references the steadfast love of God here in Jonah chapter 4. I don't think we commented on this Hebrew word before. But it's a term that's used for covenant faithfulness, loyalty. It's the the type of expression you would expect from a, a marital partner that's entered into a covenant relationship together before God. It's that type of loyalty, that type of faithfulness, that type of forgiveness. We're in a covenant together. I'm bound to you kind of thing. He's claiming this steadfast love and he says, I hate this about you. I despise this about you. Why does Jonah respond with anger about a city repenting? Some people would say that he's worried about his reputation. Well, now I'm going to get a bad reputation as a prophet because I've prophesied that something was going to happen and it didn't. 
Maybe he's worried about God's reputation. These people are going to be allowed to to continue in evil because their repentance won't last. And then they're going to eventually continue to oppress Israel. But really what we see here as we work through chapter 4 is that he simply didn't care about others. He doesn't care about other people. And when God does good things to other people, it bothers him. It makes him angry. We said that Jonah chooses to not love what God loves. He chooses to not love people. God loves people. God loves the nations. And Jonah says, I don't want to. I don't want to love people. I don't want to love the nations. So he's running from God's love just as much as he was running from God's will in chapter 1. Jonah ignores the responsibility to love his enemies and to forgive as he has been forgiven. Jesus references this in the New Testament. The responsibility to forgive as you've been forgiven. And he says, he teaches parables about this. To forgive as you've been forgiven. Jonah has rightful reason to be angry at Assyria. They've oppressed God's people. But he's missing the opportunity to forgive them. To extend grace just as God has extended grace to Jonah. Now, to Jonah's credit, this would be evil if Christ doesn't come in the New Testament, right? Like Romans 3 says that God, in his forbearance, he passed over former sins so that he could be the justifier when Christ is on the cross. So God looks at this and says, I'm relenting from pouring out wrath right now because by your repentance, your wrath will now be poured out on my son. That's what he says in Exodus. He's kind, he's compassionate, he's gracious, but he doesn't clear the guilty. And that's probably where Jonah's some of his motivation is. He's like, you can't clear the guilty. All they did was put on sackcloth and ashes. That doesn't atone for their wickedness. And God would echo that. You're right, that doesn't atone for their wickedness. I still have wrath that needs to be poured out. And rather than seeking those type of answers, Jonah just says, this is evil. God informs us in the New Testament that it's not evil. Because Christ becomes the wrath satisfier for those that repent. So God's wrath is always poured out. We said in 2 Thessalonians, when Jesus returns, he will pour out wrath on those that are his enemies. And for those that have repented, the wrath has already been poured out on Jesus. God is faithful. He is just. He is loving. He's not the type of God that just says, hey, you guys are are great. I love you guys. I see you're trying really hard. I'm just going to forget that you sinned. We're going to wipe that off. We're not going to count that. We're just going to let you start over. He doesn't do that. He still has to punish the sin, and he punishes Christ for it. That's why this is not evil. God doesn't clear the guilty. We minimize what happened on the cross if we don't see that Christ died on the cross for what Nineveh had done. He's not evil. He's a good God, and he's a gracious God, but he's a just God. And that's why Christ has to come to the cross for us. I've been asking myself, is there anybody that I struggle to love in the way that Jonah struggles to love Nineveh. I don't really feel like I have any type of prejudice feelings towards a, a people group or, or anything like that that would mimic what Jonah has here. I mean, you may you may have some type of select group of people that uh, you have animosity towards. Um, I would venture to say that it's probably more likely that there's individuals in our life that maybe if we we're really pressed, we have a hard time saying they deserve God's mercy. They deserve God's forgiveness. Probably the closest thing in my life would be the situation with my dad. That, you know, he's made, he made his choice to leave our family, to, to have an affair, to, to, to marry another woman, to enter into a relationship with her and her kids, and, and for all practical purposes has abandoned uh, me and my family and my sister and her family. And, and I've come to grips with that. I, I'm, I'm maybe to my own fault content with, with how this has played out. There was a time in my life where I was very intentional to pursue him and to pursue his repentance. I mean, the man pastored for years and, and, and then he walked away. And there was no real genuine, I'm sorry for what I've done And if I could go back, I'd do it again. The best I've ever gotten from him is, I'm sorry people were hurt by the choices that I made, but these were the best choices for us. 
And, and for me, because of the hurt and the pain and the, the agony that's been caused to our family, that's the closest thing that I would maybe argue from my heart that I don't believe he deserves God's mercy and forgiveness. And, and I demonstrate that by not pursuing him anymore. Now, I, I think I'm at the point where I would rejoice if he called me up and, and there was genuine repentance. But I'm, I'm indifferent to the situation. So that's probably the closest for me that I come to Jonah's attitude here. And I would challenge you to examine your own self and where maybe there's this type of person or these type of people in your life that you would want to withhold grace and mercy to because you don't think they deserve it. Because if those people are there in your life, then that needs to be worked out. That's, that's application for you from this book, that that has to stop, that has to go away, that has to be resolved. Ultimately, Jonah reaches the point where he says, what I've experienced of you makes me no longer want you, God. What I've experienced from you makes me no longer want you. A world where God forgives is a world where Jonah doesn't want to be. He says, I'm, I'm ready to die. As far as I'm concerned, you can kill me. Because if this is how it's going to be, if this is how you're going to do things, like we said earlier, I'm taking my stuff and I'm, I'm packing up and I'm leaving. I don't want to be here. This is what Yahweh is. If this is what, what it looks like, I don't want any part of it. He's reached the depths of depravity here. I hope we're not guilty of this attitude. We, we see that we can even veil that attitude sometimes and think that we're being righteous in it. In Luke 18, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I mean, that's what we've got here, right? Jonah thinks he's righteous. He treats others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It may not play out that you would say that you hate certain individuals and that you don't want people to be saved. But there may be individuals in your life that you say, man, I'm thankful I'm not like them. And it feels very righteous for you to say that. A coworker who's not faithful to his wife. Man, I'm glad I'm not that guy. Like, I'm glad that that's not how I live my life. I go to church, I'm part of a, I'm part of a good Bible-believing church, I give my money, like I'm faithful to serve, I pursue an accountability, I'm reading the Bible. But I'm not like that guy, like that guy just doesn't have it figured out. We can be very guilty of this mindset and we totally miss that we're doing what the Pharisee was doing. We're not extending grace to him and we're comparing ourselves to him and saying, man, I'm, I'm so much better. I can do that with my dad. I'm thankful that I'm not my dad. thankful that I'm faithful to my wife and that I'm never going to leave my kids. And I claim righteousness for myself, and I treat others with contempt. This tax collector, he's not concerned about anybody else in their sin, right? Like, he's crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like, I've got enough sin for you to deal with right here. I don't have time to worry about these other people's sin and how they're failing you. I fail you every day. And if we're going to become a church that faithfully evangelizes, then we've got to make sure that we're constantly in tune with the fact that we constantly need the gospel. That we constantly fall short and it's only by Christ and not our righteousness that we're saved. Jonah's missed that. God's very gracious in his response to this anger though. I mean, you would expect that God would just say, okay, you want to die? I'm going to consume you in fire right now for your disgraceful attitude. But I think we really see a patient response here from God. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The questioning of God is number two. The questioning of God. The first question that he asks is, do you do well to be angry? I don't think that God is 
He's not challenging Jonah here. He's not like, who do you think you are questioning me? I think he's honestly asking him, Jonah, have you really assessed this right? Like, have you really thought through this before you've spoken? Have you really assessed, do you really think that you have a right to be angry here? I think it's an intentional teaching type question. I don't think God's rearing up and bowing up and trying to fight back here. I think he's honestly asking him, Jonah, do you really think you've evaluated this situation? The, the conclusion you've reached is right. Do you have a right to be angry? Now we see that Jonah doesn't respond here. He simply walks out to the city and sits down and makes a shelter for himself. Jonah goes out to wait to see what will happen. Will Nineveh fail in its repentance and will God judge? There's debate as to whether or not he sets the shelter up after the 40 days and God relents or is he sitting there during the 40 days? It doesn't really matter as far as when and uh, when he's sitting there. The fact is that he went to sit there and I believe he went to sit there to see if God would change his, his plan and actually bring judgment. He wants to see what will happen to Nineveh. Will Nineveh fail or will God judge him? Jonah needs shelter. He refuses. This is what, you don't pick up on this unless you just spend some time meditating on this. He's in the desert and he has to make a, a makeshift type shelter to protect himself from the elements. He's close enough to see a, a great city, right? A great city is how it's been described. A city that should have plenty of room for him to stay, right? Especially a man who just brought judgment to them, clued them into the fact they needed to repent. Now you've got like-minded people, supposedly, in this city that are listening to Yahweh and listening to you. I'm sure Jonah could have said, hey, do you guys mind if I, I, I bunk up with you guys in a hotel or something? I'm sure, it would have been free of charge, right? Like he could have easily petitioned, hey, I'm going to stay here for a little bit and see how this plays out. Can I stay with you guys? Because you've shown me grace by responding to my message. Jonah despises these people so much, he'd rather camp outside of a great city with all the, the best resources at that time I'd rather sit out here in the hot sun. I hate you guys so much. I want nothing to do with you guys. So he builds this shelter. He refuses to take shelter in Nineveh. He refuses to stay in Nineveh and teach these guys more about Yahweh, right? Like he walks in and says, 40 days and you guys are done. See you. And, and so they have to kind of figure this out on their own, right? Like they're, they're repenting and they're kind of left to say, who knows, maybe God will relent jonah knew he would jonah doesn't tell him that jonah doesn't stay and disciple them now that they've repented there's no compassion for these people at all he goes out and builds this shelter he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would happen what would become of the city now the lord god appointed a plant and made it come up over jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort God provides again for Jonah. He gives him relief by appointing a plant. We're going to see that God has appointed a lot of aspects of creation to serve him in this book, right? Like he's appointed a fish. He's appointed a plant. In a minute, he's going to appoint a worm, and then he's going to appoint a wind. All aspects of creation serve God. He's in control of everything, and he uses both great things and small things to accomplish his purposes. That's kind of an underlying aspect that we could draw out of that too, that God uses great individuals and lesser known individuals to accomplish his purposes he uses a great fish everybody wants to talk about what kind of fish it was and he uses a great little worm that kind of forgets get forgot nobody tells about jonah and the worm story right it's jonah and the whale and we debated whether it's a whale or not but this worm is just as important in this story as the whale the worm is used to wake jonah up to his selfishness god appoints this plant Jonah knows it's a gift and, and readily accepts it. I mean, this plant grows up overnight. And it's shade for Jonah. And Jonah, Jonah has to recognize this doesn't just happen. Plants don't just grow like this. This is God. God's grace to me. And he readily accepts it. He loves the plant. He loves the shade that it's giving him in these elements. Look what it says about Jonah's regards to this plant. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
In verse 1, he's exceedingly angry that a whole city got saved. Now he's exceedingly glad that a plant covers his head. It's a contrast about his attitude here. He's exceedingly glad and he's exceedingly angry. Basically, the author of Jonah is saying, I love this plant as much as I hate those people. Think about that. I love this plant that I've only known for a day as much as I hate those people. Jonah's perspective is so out of focus here. It's been out of focus since chapter 1. Jonah wasn't aware of it. God was aware of it. God has orchestrated all of these events to bring us to the climax of chapter 4. That your perspective is so messed up, Jonah. And it's reflective of how messed up my people in Israel are as well. God's plan is to use this plant to expose Jonah's thinking. It's a lesser to greater argument that we're going to see here. God's going to argue that if you care about this plant, this lesser element of creation, how much greater should your care and pity be for the city of Nineveh? Jonah, as we're going to see when this plant dies, Jonah deems this plant worthy to live, but he deems Nineveh not worthy to live. It says in verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. I told you this is a great example of God in in some senses, imposing his will against man's free will, right? I mean, Jonah's saying, I want to die. Kill me. That's my choice. If you're giving me choice, this is my choice. And God says, eh, in this situation, you don't get to choose. You're not dying. You're going you're gonna to ride this out because I've got something to teach you. You're, you're my creation. You don't get to make this choice. Jonah again says, I want to die. God comes to his second question, question number two. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? God's already asked him, do you do well to be angry at at what I've done with Nineveh? We don't get a response, but all indications are the answer would have been yes, absolutely. Over my dead body do I want to see Nineveh repent. If they're repenting, you kill me because I don't want to be a part of this. Now God says, do you have right to be angry about this plant? Jonah does answer him here. He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This is how anger works sometimes, right? Like when anger is allowed to fester in our life, some of the simplest things can set us off. I mean, the man has lost a plant that he only had for a day. He says, I'm ready to die. Like, kill me now. His anger has been festering for so long that even the littlest things that go wrong in his life set him off. You do well to be angry for the plant. Yes. What's crazy is that Jonah is sitting there on a hill. He's now further angry at God that he's taking this plant away because he has to know that it's a gift from God because plants wouldn't just grow like this overnight. He's now angry at God for taking this plant away. He says, you should have left the plant for me. You should be giving me comfort and be taking care of me while he's sitting there hoping that God doesn't do the same to this city. That's the depth of his sin here. He's saying, God, you owe me this plant while I watch you hopefully kill these people. No heart, no love for these individuals. I think God's kind of bringing some tragic humor into the story. Because Jonah has just said, I don't understand your love, God. Like, I know you're gracious, I know you're compassionate, I don't understand how you cannot kill these people. And it's essentially like God is saying, You don't understand my love. I don't understand your love. You love a day-old plant more than thousands and thousands of people? Jonah says, I don't understand your love. Like, how can you forgive these people? God says, I don't understand your love. You love a plant more than people. This is the argument. This This is what God's wanting to do in Jonah's heart. He's wanting to expose him through this simple event. God critiques Jonah's love. You didn't invest anything in this day-old plant. You simply care for it 
Because it offers you something. Look what God says. Verse 10, the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. God says, let's, let's evaluate how we both love. You love a plant. You did nothing to, to bring it about. You didn't labor over it. You weren't a gardener where you planted it and then watered it and labored through the seasons to see it come about. You didn't invest any time or energy into this plant. You got it when you didn't have it. You were totally fine. You weren't complaining about dying before you got the plant. This was simply a gift to you for a day. Now you're ready to die when it's taken away. You didn't do anything for it. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It's not even an eternal plant. It's a plant that lasted for a day. You don't have that much attachment to it. And yet you want to claim that you love it? And it really wasn't that he loved the plant, right? He loved what the plant could give him. He wasn't this environmentalist that was all about creation and all about the earth. And he's like, don't kill plants. Like, I love plants. He's not ever loved a plant before this. He's not a guy that that loves plants more than people. He loves what anything can do for him more than he loves people. And that goes all the way to God. If you can do stuff for me and my people, then I love you. But when you start interacting with other people, I don't want you anymore. We're guilty of sometimes like that. We don't, we see that we don't see ourselves as a part of the big plan of God, right? That he's been telling a redemptive story for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and this is a little blip on that screen. Sometimes we become so consumed with our life and how God's treating us in our life, and we fail to see that we're a part of a big story. This will be guilty of only wanting God when he's available to do something for us because that's where Jonah is. This plant only has value to me if, if it can offer me something. The day I pack up and leave and go back, you can kill the plant. I don't need it anymore. These people of Nineveh offer him nothing. That's why he doesn't love them because he doesn't get anything from them. There's no value in Nineveh because they don't do anything for me. That's, that's what Jonah's love was all about. If you can offer me something, well, then I can love you. But if you don't have anything, if I don't get anything from you, I'm not interested in you. Jonah demonstrates that he's more concerned about himself and his own comfort than he is for other people. He doesn't care about the plant. He only cares about what the plant can offer him. He has no care for Nineveh. And then God poses his third question, question number three. Should not I pity Nineveh? So the first question, we don't get any response. Question number two, we get a yes response. Question number three is more of a silent response. The story just ends here. We don't know if there was a response. And I think it's a a literary tool to leave us guessing because it forces us to try to answer the question, and we need to answer the question. Look what God does. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God draws on the created value of Nineveh as reason enough to care about them. God says if for no other reason Nineveh has value because they were created by me. The only person that's still angry in this story is Jonah. And he's the very person that really should never have been angry. Because if we go back to chapter 1, remember God was very intentional. He says, the evil of Nineveh has come up before me. God says, I'm angry at their sin. I have a right to be angry at their sin. You don't have a right to be angry at them. And yet the only person that's still angry at the end of the story is Jonah. God says, they have value for the simple sake that they're created. And they have value to God because he created them. He also draws on this 120,000. And the termage here about not knowing their right hand from the left communicates an innocent type value to them. He's saying there's 120 innocent people there. Now there's debate as to whether or not this is all of Nineveh. That there's 120,000 people. They don't know their right hand from the left, meaning they don't know how to 
discern how to get themselves out of this sinful situation. Others would say this is talking about their children. There's 120,000 that haven't even reached the state where they know they're right and left. I tend to lean more towards that. It really doesn't matter who the 120,000 are referencing. God is simply saying there are people that don't have full knowledge about me that warrant my forgiveness here. There's value in the fact that these people are ignorant on some level. Whether they are only exposed to general revelation, like Romans chapter 1 people, they have a knowledge of God but not full revelation about Jesus, or it's kids. I tend to think it might just be the kids because he also references cattle here. He says, look, Mr. Environmentalist, if you're so concerned about this plant, there are cattle in that city that have more value than the plant. And if I consume that city, those cattle would die too. Now, God's not all of a sudden elevating cattle to the status that the Hindus would would elevate them to. But we do know from Scripture that God's concerned about his creation. We know from Jesus and his teachings in Matthew that God knows when a sparrow falls. So God's not so oblivious and so undervalued with his creation that he would say, I don't care about killing cattle. That's a reminder to us that we don't go to the extreme of overvaluing creation, but then we also don't undervalue it either. God says, there's cattle there that I don't want to kill. There's cattle there that give that place value because it's part of my creative order. We also know that God's invested in these people. Right? Like he has raised them up. He has overseen what's brought them to be a great city. He knew these people before the foundations of the earth. These people have value, God says. I've invested in them. You didn't invest in the plant. I've invested in these people. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that when God works in our life, he's also working in other people's lives. God's not you-centered. It's almost as though Jonah's thinking, man, God works in Israel. God's saying, I work in Nineveh. Like, I'm concerned about these people. I have plans for these people. These people play a role in my big plan. They have value. They're eternal beings. That plant lasted a day. These people, their souls will last for eternity one way or another. God's communicating to Jonah that he has creator rights over Nineveh and the plant. He says, I can do what I want to. It's my city and it's my plant. I'm free to govern it however I want to. And we can be thankful, and we've talked about this before, we can be thankful that God is free in his sovereignty. He's free to govern how he wants to. He doesn't have to check into a board and get approval before he does something. He's the best God possible, and he's free to act as the best God possible. He's not a, he's not a benevolent God that's limited by a board that he has to get approval from. God says, I'm free to govern however I want to, and this is right. This is not evil for me to relent from this disaster. The key to Jonah finding compassion for Nineveh is for him to realize he too does not deserve God's mercy, and yet he receives it. That's what Jonah's missing here. If Jonah's ever going to love Nineveh, and if you are ever going to love your coworkers, if you're ever going to get to the point where you're broken for your coworkers, it starts with you realizing that you're a receiver of God's mercy and you don't deserve it either. Jonah had fallen into the trap that he deserved God's mercy. And these people don't. If Jonah could ever get to the point where he realized, I don't deserve mercy, and I get it, then these people that don't deserve mercy should get it too. I need to be an extender of that grace, an extender of that mercy to Nineveh. So the question at the end of this book is left for us to answer. Should not I pity Nineveh? I think if we bring it into our context, God would say, should I not pity your co-workers? Should I not pity your neighbors? Should I not pity your unsaved family members? Should I not pity those people that you spend your time doing your hobbies with? Those four connecting points that I talked to you about, those four areas that you need to be concerned about, your contacts, your neighborhood, your family, your work, your hobbies. You come in contact with people in those four areas. God's saying, should I not pity those people? Should I not pity those people? It's the same kind of abrupt ending that we get in the prodigal son story. That story ends with a party. The the dad is celebrating the return of his son, 
representing really the Gentile world. And the Jewish brother is complaining about it. Where have these guys been all along? These guys have been running after other idols and worshiping other gods. We're Israel. We've been faithful to you. We've been worshipers of you. That's what the brother's attitude is. And the dad says, how can you not be happy about this? And we don't ever get a response from the, the other son. John MacArthur argues that we do get a response from the Pharisees. They kill Jesus. They have the same attitude that Jonah says. Jonah's not powerful enough to kill an omniscient God that, that is in heaven. So Jonah says, kill me. The Pharisees say, if this is the Messiah and if this is the God you're talking about, we don't want to be a part of this. Don't kill us, we'll kill you. It's the same kind of ending, the same attitude in the New Testament. Pharisees say, if this is God, we don't want him, and we'll kill him. They've progressed from kill us to we'll just kill you. Now, how does this story really end? We're, we're again left to, to wonder. I tend to think that, that Jonah responds correctly to this question, and I think Jonah repents at this point. I think Jonah writes this book. I think he gets things right, and I think he paints himself in the worst light possible as a teaching tool for those that would come after him. Again, we don't have any evidence of that. Somebody wrote this book, though, and somebody knew a lot of the details, and somebody knew word for word the prayer that he prayed in that fish. Holy Spirit could have given that to the author, but I tend to think this is Jonah. I tend to think this because God is victorious in every situation in the story that he wants to be victorious. He's victorious in the sailors' lives. He's victorious in the city of Nineveh. i got to think that he's victorious in the one that he was concerned about throughout the whole story. So I think Jonah gets it right at the end. It's just not included in this book. We said that Nineveh repents, and I said that they enjoy some of the most prosperous time of the Assyrian Empire following this repentance. God bestows common grace upon them. And they begin to prosper as a city, and then eventually they punish Israel. We see this in 2 Kings 17. It's funny, they punish Israel because Israel is following after vain idols. The the same thing that Jonah criticizes in chapter 2. Man, people that follow after vain idols, they sacrifice a steadfast hope in you. It's exactly what Israel was guilty of. In uh, 2 Kings 17, We won't, take the time, we won't take the time to read through it, but verses 7 through 23, if you want to go and look and see that Israel was, was brought warning about judgment just like Nineveh, and, and they don't repent. They don't turn to God. Instead, they stay with their vain idols, and Assyria, Nineveh, is brought in to bring the punishment upon Israel. So for Jonah, I think it ends in repentance. For Nineveh, this story ends with them enjoying prosperity, but eventually... They, too, get God's judgment 100 years later because they revert back to their sin. All right, two two application questions I want to give you from this chapter, and then we're going to end today with working through some of those application questions that I've been giving you all along. Two questions from today. Everybody has to answer one of these questions. You've got to determine which one applies to you. For those that aren't Christians, will we be ridiculed by Nineveh for not repenting? It's the same question that Jesus asked the, the unbelieving Jewish people. We'll stand, we'll stand on Judgment Day, and those that aren't Christians, you might get thrown into the category that Jesus says, on Judgment Day, the people of Nineveh are going to criticize you, Israel, for not repenting, because you've had something greater than Jonah that came to you. If you're not a believer, I think it's still fair to say that you've had something greater than Jonah come to you because you've had people in your life that wanted to see you become a Christian versus not. So I don't want to stand up here and say, I'm greater than Jonah in all aspects, but at least in one aspect, I desire everybody in this room to be a Christian, to be a believer, and if you're not then Nineveh has every right to ridicule you on Judgment Day for not repenting when they repented before a message from Jonah. So if you're not a believer, the question is, are you going to be ridiculed on Judgment Day for not repenting like they did? And the answer would be yes. But you can change that by repenting and putting your faith and trust in Christ. For those that are Christians, the question for us is, 
Will we be ridiculed by Jonah for being as unloving as him? Will Jonah have a right to ridicule us for living a life that is as unloving as he was living? Because I would think Jonah would say, are you kidding me? Like, I went through all that and wrote it down so that you wouldn't be the type of people that held on to grace. So that you wouldn't be the type of person that went to work for 30, 40 years and worked by the same people over and over and over and never told them about Jesus. I went through all that to teach a lesson that we're to be grace extenders and not grace hoarders. That it's not just about you and your relationship with God, that you're to extend that relationship to others. So will Jonah have a right to criticize us on Judgment Day for living a life that's real similar to his? Again, you may never say, I hate my coworkers, I hate my family members, I hate uh, my neighbors. But we'll be just as guilty of not extending grace to them as Jonah was if we fail to, to, to voice the judgment that's coming. Jonah's a step ahead of us in that he has voiced the judgment. Did it from wrong motives, didn't follow it up with any hope. But for a lot of us, he's a step ahead of where we are in our contacts. That we've yet to voice the judgment coming. Will we be ridiculed by Jonah on judgment day for that? All right, some application questions from the whole book that we've been kind of working through, and I'm going to add to it a little bit today. I've challenged you to ask yourself, are you faithfully doing what God's called you to do? Okay, this the story, while it's not focused on Jonah running away and being out of God's will, there is that element of, are you where you're supposed to be? Are you faithfully doing what God has called you to do? Does my heart of compassion line up with God's concern for the nations? Do you doubt part of God's salvation plan? We said that Jonah did not want to share the gospel with people because he felt like God was evil and unjust. I told you, I don't share the gospel with people because I doubt that God will save people. Jonah was afraid of being successful. I'm afraid of being a failure. And so I'm withheld a lot of times from walking across the street and sharing the gospel with my neighbor because I don't think he'll listen to me and I don't think God will work on his heart and I don't think repentance will happen. What part of God's salvation plan do you struggle with the most and how can you attack that? Am I indifferent to those around me who need to be saved? Am I indifferent? Again, I don't know that we're full of people that hate other people and don't want to see your neighbors saved. I think we're more people that just don't care if our neighbors are saved. We just don't care. Another question, does my heart for this day echo God's heart for this day? What do I mean by that? Second Peter 3, 9. We're told that Jesus hasn't come back yet for a reason. Because he desires for all to come to repentance. Jesus has not come back because he's still pitying certain people that haven't gotten saved yet. Do we have that same kind of heart? Do we have that same kind of focus? When we wake up every day, is it, if Jesus doesn't come back by the end of the day, it means that he's pitying somebody that hasn't repented yet. And are we supposed to be the ones to extend grace to those people that he's still pitying? Is Jesus not coming back because there's somebody in your neighborhood that's supposed to get saved? And until you extend grace to that person, he's not coming back. That's what we're told holds Jesus back from coming back. Others would say that there's prophecies and things that still have to happen. I personally say Jesus has only not come back yet because there's people that are supposed to get saved that haven't. And he's waiting on us to extend that grace. Last question. What evidence is there in your life that you care about anybody beyond yourself? Is there any tangible evidence in your life that you care about somebody beyond yourself? Now, most of us would look at that and say, well, absolutely. I can give you a list. My kids. Let me expand that question a little bit. 
Is there any, any evidence in your life that you care about anybody beyond yourself and those that offer you something? Because, see, in caring for my kids, I love my kids. They give me joy in being their dad. So I get something from my kids. I don't want to be like Jonah where my love only extends to people and objects that do something for me. I love my wife and I want to love her sacrificially and I want to love her whether she loves me back or not. But the fact is that she loves me back and I get a lot of benefits from being married to her. Jonah didn't get any benefits from Nineveh, and so he chose not to love them. I don't get any benefits from Bernie across the street from me, and so I don't love him. I don't wake up every day and wonder if he's the one that God wants to save before Jesus comes back. I'm indifferent to it. I don't have any reason to be, I'm not looking for another friend, so I don't need to go talk to Bernie to be my friend. Bernie has nothing to offer me. And so as far as I'm concerned, he doesn't exist. There's coworkers. They don't offer me anything, so they don't exist to me, really. They don't receive my intentional love and service. My challenge to you, is there, anybody, is there any evidence in your life that you care about anybody but yourself? And see, I even have to take out you guys as, as evidence for me. Because I get stuff from you. I get encouragement from you. It, it, it encourages me when you're here at church. So even when I seek out relationships with you and I seek out investment in you, I get some form of return from that. I want to be more intentional this year about examining my life. Is there any evidence that I care about anybody but me? Or is it just me? Jonah loved the plant, not because he loved plants, but because the plant offered him something. And he didn't love Nineveh because Nineveh didn't offer him anything. And he stopped loving God, at least temporarily, because God wasn't offering what he wanted. Jonah was more concerned about his personal comfort than he was for the eternity of others. I don't want to be guilty of that. And I want our church to be guilty of that. And I think we've got to wake up and, and stop living a practical Jonah-type lifestyle where we're ignoring people around us that are perishing and we're indifferent to their salvation. Not because we hate them, but because we don't love them. We don't love them like God loves them and we don't pity them like God pities them. The question, the climax of the story is, Jonah, should I, should I be viewed as evil for the pity that I have against Nineveh? But really the call to Jonah was, I want you to pity Nineveh like I do. I don't want you to pity this plant. I want you to pity things that matter. You've pitied the most unvaluable thing in this whole story, a plant. That's, that's where you've placed your value. And God's wanting to shift that value to people, and he wants to shift that value to people in our hearts as well. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for the challenging aspects of this book. God, I'm thankful that We've been able to see the depths of this story beyond just the Sunday school teaching that we've grown up with. God, I pray that you would awake us to the reality of this story. That we're far too much like Jonah. That we don't extend grace like we're supposed to. God, help us to realize that we're no better off than Jonah because we don't hate people. Because the issue is still that we don't love people. God, help us not to be prideful in the sense that we can look at this and say that Jonah was ridiculous for hating these people and, and we're not for going home and continuing to superficially interact with our coworkers and continuing to ignore those that live so close to us. God, help us to be different than Jonah. Help us not to be guilty of priding ourselves that we're not Jonah, like the Pharisee was with the tax collector. God, help us to see that we are Jonah, just like the Pharisee was guilty of sin like the tax collector. God, help us to repent 
before you have to send a fish, before you have to send a wind, before you have to send the scorching sun to wake us up. God, help us to use this new year to be extenders of your grace outside the walls of this church so that at the end of 2014 we can rejoice that our church is different than it was today because there are people that are standing with us at the end of 2014 that have received your grace and mercy. They've repented of their sins because we were intentional to have conversations with them about the gospel. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.